Welcome to episode six of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. This is Jack Llewellyn. I'm your host for these podcasts. And I want to give you a little bit of an explanation of where we've been and where we're going. Uh, some of you might have noticed that we're touching on various topics several different times. And that's by design. Um, I really wanted us to get started with a base of understanding and some general information so that we can deep dive into some other topics later on. Tonight's episode kind of continues that trend. And the title of our episode tonight is The CIA, Fact, Fiction, and Fantasy. And I promise you, we are going to dive into the CIA, the role of the CIA in uh, South and Central America in the 70s and 80s, uh, the potential role of the CIA in drug dealing in the United States. Um, we're going to talk about Gary Webb. We'll talk about a variety of things related to the CIA. So tonight's episode is not designed to be a be-all and end-all uh, thorough explanation of or exploration of the CIA. Instead, I want to give an overview of some of the things that we know the CIA was involved in. And then I want to turn our attention to some of the claims, some of the allegations that have been made regarding the CIA, so that, again, we can start to separate fact from fiction, and then with respect to some of the allegations that have been made in relationship to the CIA and Agent Camarena, the pure fantasy. So with that, let's start with getting a little bit of an idea of what we do know for sure about the CIA's role in Central America. And the first thing I want to talk about is kind of the 1982 agreement that's reached, um, and I think it was in February of 1982, between the Attorney General and the Director of the CIA. And this agreement, in short consisted of a uh, a joint agreement to exclude the rec reporting of narcotics and drug crimes by the CIA to the, the Justice Department. So, under this agreement, there was no requirement to report information of drug trafficking or violations of drug laws with respect to CIA officers, assets, non-staff employees, and contractors. So think about that. Um, again, 1982, Attorney General, Director of the CIA say, don't have to report drug crimes in any re way related to the CIA. This agreement was enforced generally speaking, from about February of 1982 until August of 1995. That time period, that three and a half years or so, covers um, almost the entire period of the U.S. involvement in the Contra War in Nicaragua. Um, and it also includes 
the period of some real deep U.S. involvement in counterinsurgency activities in um, El Salvador and other places in Central America. This agreement came to light uh, as part of the Iran-Contra investigations and hearings and is part of the congressional record. So this is something that we know for sure occurred. So again, want to make sure we keep the timeline good. 1982, February of 1982, we have this agreement between the Attorney General and the Director of the CIA. In um, September of 1983, the CIA releases a memo that talks about Nicaragua, Nicaragua excuse me, and details um, its plans to use what it called um, propaganda and civic action in order to um, disrupt the uh, Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Later on in 1983, um, the CIA sends uh, a gentleman by the name of Edgar Chamorro to Honduras, and he sets up a public relations office that is um, directly designed to, and it's really its sole role, is to provide support to the Contras in terms of uh, fundraising, public perception, those sorts of things. Okay, so that puts you in about nineteen, you know, mid nineteen eighty three. By the end of nineteen eighty three, the primary group opposing the Sandinistas, uh, the FDN in Nicaragua, um, the CIA puts a. a gentleman by the name of Adolfo Calero in charge of the FDN. So their person now is in charge of the largest rebel group in Nicaragua. We also know um, from, again, the Iran-Contra notes and documents that in April of 1984, the CIA started mining various harbors in Central America. Uh, and, and I'll be honest, that's something I wasn't overly aware of. Uh, and, you know, it's, I, I think, you know, the, the world has changed. It used to be that if the government did something, you know, I think a lot of people went along with it. Um, it that's no longer the case. But now you see, you know, a, a real concerted activity by the CIA. They can engage in drug activities without fear of prosecution. They make plans on how to disrupt the government in Nicaragua. They set up supporters on behalf of that. Then they start mining harbors in Central America. We also know that in about February of 1985, the uh, the CIA paid at least $186,000 to an air transportation firm by the name of SETCO, S-E-T-C-O, SETCO. 
And those of you who've listened in the past might say, God, that sounds familiar. And it does, because we talked about it earlier when we talked about Juan Ramon Matabiasteros. And the, the general consensus, and I'll come back to the non-consensus in a moment, is that Mata owned Setco and that he was um, working with the CIA to, um, to fly um, humanitarian supplies, allegedly, but to, to fly supplies into Nicaragua and into Honduras and, and other places in order to support the Contras and their activities. And then he did that largely between about 1983 and 1985. And of the parallel to that, is the allegations that the CIA protected some of Mexico's um, drug traffickers in exchange for their financial support of the Contras. Um, And we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. Those allegations come up a lot in uh, the Zuno 1 and Zuno 2 trials. They they also come up in in, uh, other ways, and I think there are some good indications that at least Felix Gallardo made sure that some money flowed from Mexico to the Contras. Now, I mentioned Setco and uh, Mata, and I will tell you that um, Mr. Mata asserts that he never owned Setco, and instead Setco was owned by a business partner who was also in the uh, Honduran Senate and that uh, he was essentially set up and was a dummy in between um, the government uh, and the CIA. Take that for what you will. Um, He says that he has proof of it and that when he gets out, He's operating under the belief that he will get humanitarian relief soon and be sent back to Honduras, but he believes that he will be able to um, show that it, it wasn't his, uh, it, it was never his company. Nevertheless, regardless of who it's, it was owned by, we know that um, the State Department paid money well over $180,000 to um, to Setco for its support of and work with the Contras. Okay. One other thing that we know for sure, I think, and, and I say I think because uh, the deeper and deeper you get into this case, the deeper and deeper you look into the CIA's involvement in Mexico and in Nicaragua and in other places, it leads you back to the old Socrates line. The only thing I know for sure is that I know nothing for sure. But I think we um, can feel pretty good that the CIA was involved in transporting drugs. And I'm going to focus for the moment exclusively on marijuana but in transporting marijuana from fields in Mexico into the United States and uh, largely into 
areas of in, in Arkansas and some other places. We're going to talk about this a lot more, but anybody who saw American Made with Tom Cruise, the Barry Seal story, um, knows about a lot of these activities. Uh, a number of witnesses have alleged that the CIA was directly involved in transporting marijuana from the field that became known as as Rancho Buffalo, uh, you know, the, the huge marijuana plantation that we discussed in the past. But the CIA was involved in transporting the, the marijuana from, or some marijuana from Buffalo into the United States. I've seen... Uh, handwritten maps from pilots who proclaim that they were involved in such transportation. And uh, if they weren't there, they got good, good imaginations um, because it was well before um, Google maps and, and things, Google earth and things of that nature. Um, and the, the maps are pretty compelling. So we know kind of to summarize fact our first section here, fact. We know the CIA worked with SETCO. We know the CIA was involved with the Contras. We know the CIA was actively attempting to overthrow the Sandinista government. And we know the CIA was involved in the transportation of at least some drugs from Buffalo, or Buffalo, excuse me, into the United States. And now we're, we're keeping apart for the moment the allegations of crack cocaine going into American um, major cities and those sorts of allegations, uh, the ones that Gary Webb really highlighted. And we're going to get back to those in subsequent episodes, okay? So hold on for that. But for the moment, let's, let's keep that as kind of our canvas to discuss now the fiction and the fantasy. One of the things I want to discuss is the idea that seems to come up, the idea that the, the CIA was kind of like this monolithic, bureaucratic establishment, and everybody at the CIA knew what everybody else was doing. And I think the evidence and testimony, and when you look at the records from the hearings into the Iran-Contra affair, it becomes very clear that there are uh, elements within the CIA who worked independently of other elements within the CIA. And one of the things that we know is that there was at least some divide between the traffickers, even the traffickers in Guadalajara, the ones that get referred to as the Guadalajara narcotics cartel, that you had, to some extent, you had the marijuana traffickers, Carlo Quintero and, and Fonseca primarily of, of that group. And you had the cocaine traffickers, which was primarily Mata and uh, Felix Gallardo, of course. Similarly, if you had operations that were involved with those traffickers, there may not have been a great deal of overlap between the activities of... CIA involvement with the marijuana traffickers and CIA involvement with the cocaine traffickers who you know whose drugs came from 
uh, or South America flowing here through Central America with the help of Matabiasteros and his network. And I think that's important because when you look at some of the allegations, and we're going to look at some of those later on in this episode, I'm going to look at more later on, but when you look at them, there is this implied assumption that everybody in the CIA is working together. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And you can attribute, you know, one thing happening in one part of Mexico. It has to be connected to something that was going on in a different part of Mexico or going on in Honduras. And I don't think that's the case. And so when you start thinking that there can be different factions, different groups, it's a bureaucracy, it's big, not everybody knows what everybody's doing, things start to make a little bit more sense. I also want to talk about the CIA and the DFS. And for those of you who don't know, the DFS, and I'm going to use the American version and not butcher the Spanish, but it's the Federal Security Directorate, the DFS, which really is, um, you know, the Mexican intelligence agency, secret police, um, you know, some people have referred to it as the, you know, Mexico's version of the CIA. So the DFS was created in 1947, and there's no doubt that the CIA or its predecessors were involved in that creation. And it was part of the Truman Doctrine of keeping communism at bay. The uh, The DFS became notorious, especially in international um, human rights circles, kind of during the period from, say, 1968 till the late 70s, in what's called the Mexican Dirty War. Um, and there were lots and lots of allegations that, um, you know, the government through the DFS, uh, you know, conducted illegal detentions, torture, assassinations, uh, what the the uh, UN referred to as forced disappearances, which I'm not really sure exactly what forced disappearances are, except they're not good. Um, in total, there were well over 350 complaints um, received by the United Nations related to Mexican state crimes committed by the DFS during this Mexican dirty war. Um, it also became well known in the, in the eighties that, um, you know, the, the DFS was working with, um, not only with drug traffickers, but all other illegal activities. And it became known, um, both before and after the DFS was disbanded that, uh, you know, the DFS was involved in a multi-million dollar car ring theft that they probably collaborated in some way, shape, and form um, with uh, the drug traffickers in Guadalajara, that they probably provided protection to Fonseca and Caro Quintero, um, probably to... Felix Gallardo, in some respects, that they provided protection to some of the the plantations and fields, including 
Rancho Buffalo. We're going to talk a lot more in different times, but it's also suggested that they uh, aided the Contras um, by selling drugs, providing money, providing guns, allowing drug traffickers or allowing Contras to be trained on ranches owned by the traffickers. Um, and you know, as we've talked about, there's the allegations that the DFS was directly responsible or directly involved in Agent Camarena's abduction and murder, that at least one of the people who picked up Camarena uh, had DFS credentials, that more than one person who was involved in his interrogation had DFS credentials, things of that nature. But you're saying, where's the fiction? The fiction is this. The allegations, when you start reading them, look at Agent Perez's commentary, look at both in his book and in uh, The Last Ark. Listen to um, some of the other allegations with respect to the CIA and you get the perception that the CIA and the DFS were joined at the hip, that every single person who worked for the DFS was working for the CIA, was involved in all the CIA activities, and I call BS. There's no way. That's not how it worked. It may well have been that at certain senior levels, the DFS and the CIA collaborated. I think we can probably assume that that's the case. It may also have been true that some of the more senior regional or local leaders of the DFS interacted with the CIA. But as in every organization, you know, kind of the working grunt on the street the lower-level DFS agents had nothing to do with the CIA, had nothing to do with planning, and to attribute, as some will do, to attribute, as some have done, including Agent Boreas, to attribute every action by every member of the DFS or every purported member of the DFS to the CIA is disingenuous, and it it's illogical, and it's not supported by the facts. Now, one of the other things that I want to point out as an absolute fiction, and I think this is really critical and very important. Agent Boreas and others like to give the impression that the CIA was aggressive and extremely active in Guadalajara. And more importantly, extremely active and involved with the drug traffickers. Fonseca, Gallardo, uh, Carlo Quintero, and others, of course. The problem with that is there's no support for it. Jaime Kirkendall made a, a statement, and I think it's in Elaine Shannon's Desperado. So it's that long ago to say... We were, and I'm I'm not quoting him exactly, of course, 
but to say the DEA was damn good at their job in in Guadalajara, and they had really good informants. And if the CIA had been that connected, they would have heard about it. And what do we know for sure? We talked about some of this earlier. There is nothing in the files or records of anyone in the DEA at that time in Guadalajara talking about the involvement of the CIA, being concerned about the CIA, worried about the CIA, worried about the CIA getting in in the way of investigations. Nothing. Nothing at all. I mentioned that Susie Lozano, who is the, or was, I'm sorry, the the secretary in the office for the DEA in Guadalajara said she never even heard people talk about the CIA. And that's not to say that people didn't know that the CIA had people around, they had people in the consulate, but it wasn't this massive operation. They weren't everywhere. They weren't intimately involved with the traffickers that the DEA agents were spending all day, every day, tracking and getting information about. All right. Got to take a, a drink here. I'm um, one week post-COVID, but uh, my lungs haven't quite figured that out yet. So one second here. Okay. So that's the fact and the fiction. Now we're going to talk about the fantasies. And I'm going to talk in particular about five of them. Or maybe six. <laughs> the first one is the allegation that the reason the CIA was after Camarena is he was on to their activities. And we've talked in prior episodes at length about how that doesn't really make sense. And for our purposes today, let's remember that there's nothing There's no written documentation of any kind that supports that allegations. Nothing contemporaneous. Not one thing. If Agent Camarena had found out that the CIA was involved with the traffickers to support the Contras, and if he was worried about it, the idea that he wouldn't have told any of his colleagues, that he wouldn't have said something that was overheard in... Uh, the the DEA office in Guadalajara, that he wouldn't have written something down somewhere, that he wouldn't have sent a note somewhere to somebody in the DEA, DEA saying, look, here's what's going on. That's nonsensical. And yet there is nothing. Nothing can be pointed to. Now, out there someplace, I can hear somebody, I can hear Agent Perea saying, that's not true. We have Buendia. And I want to talk about Buendia. So who was Buendia? Manuel Buendia was a very well-known reporter in Mexico. He wrote for the Excelsior. And in 1983-1984, he was doing a series of investigative reports that were directly tying Mexican officials, DFS officials, to the drug trade and to the drug traffickers. Now you're going to hear all the time that he was talking that he was reporting about the CIA's involvement too. BS didn't happen that way. He may have been trying to link the CIA, but at the time of his death, 
His primary allegations were to tie the DFS and Mexican government officials to the traffickers. May 30, 1984, Buendia is killed. Um, a hitman shoots up his car. He's killed on the street. And um, the president at the time puts the head of the DFS, Antonio Zaria Perez, in charge of the investigation. A few months go by, and it becomes well-known that Zaria, instead of being the uh, the good guy investigating the case, was actually involved in trying to cover up the case because he had ordered the hitman. The hitman who killed Buendia had been hired by Zaria himself. Now, we're going to get the allegation. Someplace... Hector Barea says that, and it, it, it varies. Listen to this. Either in one of Cameron's documents, there was a phone number that was Buendia's, say, showing that they had talked at one point, and, or there was Buendia's name in one of his calendars. In any event, that notation connects Cameron and Buendia, and they were killed for the same reason. Several logical flaws there. The first, of course, is that there's nothing to say what they talked about. Let's assume for the sake of argument that they met or that they um, talked on the phone. We have no idea what they were talking about. None whatsoever. The other thing is, it's almost a year apart. (laughs) <laughs> Almost a year apart, Buendia dies on May 30, 1984. Cameron is not murdered until February of the next year. So how is it that their conversation that you know was so important, it led to Buendia's death, and somehow it's directly connected to Agent Cameron's death? Doesn't make any sense. Now, there's a book that was written called Eclipse of the Assassins by uh, a husband and wife team, the Hartleys. They try to make this allegation, and um, you can look in my book, uh, Someone Had to Die, because I take a couple of, of pages to discuss the Eclipse of the Assassins. They try to connect some dots and create a a case that these two deaths were somehow related. And in doing so, um, they make unbelievable leaps of logic, in my humble opinion, and they largely rely, I shouldn't say largely, almost completely rely on and assume to be true all of Agent Perez's allegations, all of the allegations of his witnesses. One of the other arguments that's been made, and I think this is in uh, the docu-series, but not in Hector Brays's book, but Hector makes the allegation that Camarena was the first to follow the money. And that's just absurd. 
the CIA, or excuse me, the DA had been working on Operation Padrino for years. There had been plenty of lo- investigation into the the banking and and other activities of um, the cartel members of Caro Quintero, Felix Gallardo primarily. Um, there's also the allegation made that Camarena seized assets of Caro Quintero, which, let me be clear, <laughs> which did not happen. Okay, so there's nothing, nothing, nothing to suggest that the reason Camarena was picked up was because he was, quote-unquote, onto the CIA's activities. Here's some more fantasy. Phil Jordan says that he was with Camarena, that he came down to Guadalajara um, for a meeting, was driving around with Camarena, and he noticed that his car was being followed, and he asked Camarena who it is, and he says, oh, that's the CIA, they follow all the time. Think for a second about how ridiculous that is. Number one, again, we go back to, he'd willingly tell Phil Jordan that, oh, that was the CIA, but never mentioned it to anyone in the office, never wrote it down, never complained. Phil Jordan, you know, 20 years, 30 years later, starts making the allegations. He's all concerned about it, that the CIA was following him. And yet there's no evidence that Phil came back to the United States and did anything. He didn't call... Washington, D.C., call his superiors in, at the DEA and say, God, you got to do something about this. It just doesn't really make any sense. Uh, we talked a lot in the past about the, the, uh, the fact that the CIA really isn't mentioned in uh, the interrogation tapes of Camarena's torture. One of the, the allegations is that there was the a ranch where uh, Camarena, or, or excuse me, where Cara Quintero allowed the uh, the CIA to use the landing strip for purposes of training Contras, sending materials back and forth to the Contras during the interrogation. Camarena mentions that ranch once, and the interrogation at that moment is transferred over or moved to um, the questions about Buffalo. They were interested in how people found out about Buffalo. They had no interest in finding out about the ranch or anything else. And again, if you're picked up because the CIA wants to know what you know, you would think they would have asked more questions. And it's not enough. It's not enough to simply say we may not have all the tapes. Do you really think that the interrogation, and again, if you listen to it, it's crazy. There's three people talking at different times, and it's hard to follow. And, you know, voices are over the top of each other. This is not, you know, a calm, methodical deposition. This is an interrogation with lots of adrenaline, lots of drugs, lots of alcohol being involved. And so then to suggest that they were smart enough that every time the CIA came up, it was on the tapes that aren't there. I just don't buy it. 
As a preview, we're going to talk a lot about the interrogation tapes next week. And then we've also talked a lot about Felix Rodriguez, the allegations that he was there. In the last couple of days, I've gotten more information that corroborates the belief of many, the the assertion by Mr. Rodriguez, and the belief of the DEA that Felix Rodriguez was in Miami, Florida, helping at a hospital that was providing care to Contras. And he was at that Miami hospital on at least February 7 and February 8, 1985. And if he was in Miami at the hospital, where, by the way, there was press, there was the mayor of Miami and other dignitaries, if he was there, he couldn't have been in Guadalajara and he couldn't have been uh, interrogating Camarena, not even to mention all the reasons we talked about that it makes absolutely no sense. Again, as a preview of coming attractions, we are going to get a lot more information on Mr. Rodriguez coming up. The the last fantasy that I want to bring up is Judge Rafiti. So Edward Rafiti was the federal court judge who was in charge of the Zuno 1 and Zuno 2 trials. In both of those trials, defendants tried to make allegations, and this is far more in one than in two, but tried to have introduced evidence relating to the CIA's involvement with the traffickers and to essentially argue that... um, the CIA that the defendants thought that their activities were not illegal because they had been sanctioned by the CIA, and there are nuances around it. But let's let's say that that's the primary. You can't charge me with something when the CIA either said it's okay or directed me to go do it. Graffiti didn't let in any of that information. And some have now said, ah, he was a co-conspirator. He got involved. He was specifically put on the case to protect the CIA. And that's another one that there are no facts to support that. None. Important to note, in all of his rulings that related to the CIA, every single one, none Zero were overturned on appeal. Not one. I was in the courtroom when some of those arguments were made. I've talked to, personally talked to, recently talked to, lawyers who made those arguments. Not one of them has said. Not one of them has hinted. Not one of them agrees with the argument that Judge Rafiti denied them because somehow he was, you know, nefariously complicit in all of this, and he was there to protect the CIA. Not a single one buys that. I say in my book that uh, a, a lawyer had once said that uh, Judge Rafiti was a 
mean, nasty, cantankerous son of a bitch, but he was a mean, nasty, cantankerous son of a bitch to everybody. And, uh, and the person who said that was me, but, uh, you know, um, whatever people thought about judge Rafiti, there is no evidence, nothing. It is pure fantasy, pure speculation to believe that his rulings were made in bad faith, were disingenuous, or that he somehow was working for, on behalf of, or otherwise protecting the CIA. So to recap, what do we, what do we think, what am I asserting is complete fantasy from the last narc, from the allegations of Hector Boreas, the allegations of Phil Jordan, Camarena wasn't on to CIA activities, and that wasn't why he was killed. There's no connection to the Buendia murder. Camarena was not the first to follow the money. Phil Jordan's assertion that the CIA was following Camarena is absurd on its face. Felix Rodriguez was not involved, and he wasn't there, and Judge Rafiti made his rulings like him or not, based on his belief in the law, not for any other reason, and there's no evidence to suggest otherwise. Let's reiterate what we said a couple of times before. What's the point of this? The point isn't to disagree with Hector Perez or Phil Jordan or anyone else, though I do. The point is to say you can't just make allegations without having some facts. And if there are going to be allegations made, then you have to analyze them carefully. And it's easy to say, oh, Buendia, Camarena, wow. But not when they're a year apart, when there's no other evidence. That's what we're trying to do here. That's the point of this, and it's going to be the point when we talk more about Camarena. It's going to be the point when we talk more about Gary Webb and some other things of that nature, uh, and a variety of conspiracies that, that come up. Let's be academically honest, and let's evaluate the claims. And you know what? If the evidence says... That could be, we'll say that. You know, I was accused recently of somebody saying, well, you don't want the CIA to be involved. I'm like, baloney. (laughs) If I could be the one who found the evidence, the real evidence, not just somebody saying it, I'd be happy as hell. I'd shout it from the rooftops. But it isn't there. All right, we ran a little bit longer than normal tonight. Eh, Just a couple minutes. But I appreciate you hanging with me and my voice. Um, Next week, we are going to talk about the interrogation tapes. And we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into kind of their genesis, how people found them, who's listened to them, what the, uh, the transcripts are like, and some... Lingering questions about the tapes, not just the ones that don't exist or may not exist, but the ones that we've listened to. And then the following week, we're going to take the podcast on the road 
and we are going to do a podcast from a remote location um, where we're going to have a couple of guests, uh, at least one, hopefully two, and I think it'll be a surprise. I don't want to give it away yet, um, particularly because I haven't convinced everybody to appear yet. So we will do that, uh, and that'll be coming up in the next two weeks. So thank you for listening. Everybody have a good week.